What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Eleanor Longden. Eleanor is a voice hearer. She's a postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds, focusing on trauma and hearing voices. Eleanor is the recipient of the British Psychological Society's Undergraduate Award, and she is the coordinator of InterVoice, the International Hearing Voices Network Scientific Committee. And we're talking with Eleanor today about making sense of hearing voices. So welcome to Madness Radio, Eleanor Longden. Thank you, Will. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you, Eleanor, and, and I have been really um, struck by your work because you're someone who hears voices. You also have clinical experience working with people. You're a trainer. You're known um, throughout Europe in doing your trainings on hearing voices, and also you are one of the leading researchers on the voice hearing experience. And I know that your recent um, work, your PhD research, is about trauma and dissociation and hearing voices, and we're going to be talking about that. But maybe we should just get started by asking you about your personal experience. You yourself are a voice hearer. Do you want to tell us about how that emerged and what you went through and how it was that you um, went through the process of coming out of the mental health system and then starting your career as a researcher and a leading trainer in the in the hearing voices movement? It's about my own sort of personal journey into the world of voice hearing began when I was a, a very young child and I sometimes sort of look look back on myself and and really see in some ways this sort of shattered, fragmented child that would grow into a, a crushed and devastated adult. And in some ways my voice hearing experiences were, were forged really in this crucible of, of pain and fear and shame. Um, and these were childhood experiences of abuse, fundamentally, that would, again, very strongly influence the adult that I would ultimately become. Mm. And I'm somebody who initially sort of identified myself as a voice hearer from the age of 18. And it's only relatively recently that I've realized I actually have heard voices much, much longer than that, probably since the age of about five and I have my first memory really of, of that experience was being in a, a maths lesson at school and being asked to do, you know, obviously a very, very simple um, maths problem. But as, as somebody who struggled a lot with maths and always have, um, feeling quite stressed at being unable to complete this task and hearing internally this voice that very calmly observed she is struggling with the problem. Um, and at the time, being so young, I just assumed that this was the sort of experience that everybody had, um, that there was nothing strange or unusual about it. And that monologue, that just very calm, impartial narrative, was something that stayed with me on and off throughout childhood, throughout adolescence, but didn't almost become voices as I recognized them until I was 18, and this was when I was at university. So this was a this was a voice that you were hearing internally that was separate from you, but was commenting and monologuing about you as if you were another person. That's right. Um, this third person narrative and commentary, and it was it was very neutral and very impartial. It, there was no emotion to it at all. It never sounded angry or sad or you know any kind of effect. It was just an impartial observer. And so this monologue voice that's commenting on your experience as a third person, that was something that, that you stayed with you all through your, your childhood. That's right. And I always described myself as a person who'd buried their past, you know, put all these, these very painful memories, these, this sense of fear and shame and horror and terror into a box and sealed the lid over. And I think this is something that many, many people do. Mm -hmm. um, but in burying my past, I had essentially buried it alive. And all of this, this unresolved pain was just screaming to get out. And 
essentially and ultimately, of course, it did. And the beginnings of that was when I was a student at university. And it was during my second semester that this monologue voice truly did manifest as a voice as I understood it. Um, and for me, that meant that I began to hear it externally through my ears. It ceased to be a very private, internal experience mm. and became much more radically separate from myself. And I do sort of have quite distinct memories of that process happening. Um, but I wasn't particularly frightened by it. I think a little bit unsettled and taken aback. And there was something slightly eerie about it at first, I think, just a sense of being invaded and imposed upon by this, this observer. But I became used to it very, very quickly. And it's, again, very quickly seemed to actually provide quite a positive role. Because again, I was somebody who was very distressed, very anxious, someone who was not good at expressing their needs, somebody who didn't know how to advocate for herself, mm. who didn't know how to express strong emotion in a in a healthy way, and somebody who was who was very fragmented, who was very crippled on on one level, shattered. And although I tried desperately hard to push those feelings away and mm. to play the part of somebody who was who was normal. And in the midst of all this tumultuous and chaotic internal life, this voice, this calm, impassive voice, almost seemed to be reminding me that in the midst of all that, I was carrying on as normal. Mm. So whenever the voice observed, she is going to the library, she is leaving the room, she is reading a book, it was almost like it was reminding me that I was still carrying on as normal and that I was functioning and meeting responsibilities. So in some strange way, the voice almost became quite companionate, almost like a, a friend, you know, a very, very boring friend, but a friend who was almost reassuring that I was still doing what I needed to do. And then at some point that, that voice changed to become more negative, is that right? That's right. Um, and that change happened in a, a pretty banal situation in some ways. And it was in a seminar group with another student who used to challenge me in a, in a very confrontational and hectoring, aggressive way. And he would ridicule my opinions. He would constantly put me down. And I never stood up for myself because I was sort of, again, somebody who, who wasn't good at meeting her own needs, somebody who felt it was very, very important to keep everyone happy. And I think mm. many children who've had experiences of being tyrannized and terrorized sometimes become very diffident adults who are very good at reading a situation, very good at trying to preempt an explosion from another person, very good at trying to keep the peace, keeping everything calm and safe. But it also meant that I would come out of those scenarios feeling hugely frustrated and submissive. So you were using strategies that you learned as a way of dealing with the student who was really kind of bullying you intellectually. Yeah, strategies that I'd learned to try and regulate myself, um, try and keep myself feeling calm and safe. And maybe they weren't the most helpful strategies, but I was doing the best I could with what I had. And doing what so many of us do, which is just to try and survive, you know. And there was a cost to these strategies, mm -hmm. and certainly this particular strategy meant that there was a, a part of me that felt consumed with rage, very, very angry aspect of myself that was just never being expressed. Mm -hmm. And intriguingly, on leaving this seminar group in one particular, um, after one such experience of, of being um, subjugated, that the voice said, as normal, she is leaving the room. But for the first time, the tone had changed and the voice sounded angry. Um, and it's quite hard to imagine how someone could say she is leaving the room in an angry way, but this voice managed it. Um, and it was, it was unmistakable, this, this sense of outrage, almost, this blistering antagonism in the way that the voice had expressed itself. And I was hugely intrigued by this and wondered immediately, what is it about this particular circumstance that makes the voice react in this way? And I realized very quickly that it was my own externalized sense of anger, this feeling, this, this almost festering sense of, of rage. Anger is almost not strong enough. I think it was, it was rage. 
that was disowned by myself but expressed by the voice. And in the next seminar group, I conducted almost like a little experiment in a way. And this time I did stand up for myself. And it was quite mild, but by my standards, that was almost a revelation to be assertive. And I think assertiveness is is linked with with self-respect as well, Mm -hmm. you know, that I have a right to be heard. And sure enough, on on leaving the room, the voice had returned to normal. And that was a very early demonstration for me of how the voice, and at that point it was only one voice, that I heard was, was very closely linked to my own emotional life and was taking the place of my own disowned emotion. So the voice returned to normal in the sense that it returned to a neutral monologue tone rather than carrying the rage that you yourself weren't tapping into at all. That's right. Yeah, Mm. the voice immediately was was calm, neutral, and passive, just as it had always been. So did you notice the same pattern continue, that times when you weren't standing up for yourself or being assertive, that the voice would start being, being angry? Well, interestingly, it was after that particular experience that I made a decision that would have a catastrophic impact on the next few years of my life, which is that I told somebody what was happening. Mm. Um, And this was a a friend at university who asked me why I seemed so satisfied with how the seminar had gone because it was, you know, well known in my sort of group of friends that I hated this particular seminar group and I was very frank with her and you know, far too frank in that I described this voice hearing experience and she was utterly horrified, almost disgusted in a way. It's, I had this very, very dramatic sense that actually maybe hearing voices isn't such a good thing. And I think it was at that point that the conditioning process began and that's the the equation really that is society's equation that says voice hearing equals insanity. And in a covert way, my friend's demeanor was communicating to me that normal people don't hear voices. Mm. And the fact that you do implies that there is something very badly wrong with you. And she was very insistent that I make an appointment to go and see the GP on the university campus, the general practitioner, which I, I did subsequently, and that was my second error of judgment. So then you went to the, um, the school uh, doctor, and then, then what happened? I was certainly somebody who, who wanted help. I was not fully aware of what had happened to me as a child. That was something that would only really make sense of many years later because it was essentially dissociated. It was pushed away and unprocessed, which many traumatic memories often are for people. There's a wonderful quotation by a researcher called, I believe, Julie Harvey, um, who says, trauma survivors don't have memories, they have symptoms. Hmm. And I was somebody who was, I was hugely anxious, just pervasive sense of unhappiness, fear, this constant sense of not being good enough, of being deficient, of lacking in some way coupled with a ferocious perfectionism and anybody who's, ex- who's a perfectionist will know it's like having a police state in your head mm. and I, I was very unhappy and, and didn't, I didn't quite know what it would be like to feel better because I almost couldn't imagine not feeling like this but I just knew I wanted to feel different mm-hmm. you know it's like that, that Freudian idea of you know moving from, from misery to just being sort of just common and garden unhappiness and so I, I did go to the GP in the sort of vague hope that something could, could you know, the, the magic of medical science would, would come into place. And, you know, medicine, it, it has this charisma and credibility, and you are very willing to hand over your power to a doctor in the belief that they can make things better for you. And we're socialized in a way to see doctors in that way. Mm-hmm. And I went to see him with, with reasonable expectations. And... I sat down and began to tell him about, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the future, I, I have really low self-esteem, I'm anxious all the time, all these kind of things. And he was palpably bored when I was talking about these things and staring at this patch of, of wallpaper just behind my head and chewing on this pencil and, and just clearly sort of just almost thinking, oh, no, not, not another one, you know, not another, not another case of teenage angst. And then I said, oh, and there's this voice. 
And he swung around and literally dropped the pencil in his eagerness and sort of saying, oh, oh, you're hearing voices. Oh, you, you, must, you must tell me more about this. And I was, uh, again, sort of so eager for help that I was immediately struck that he was interested in me and immediately began to tell him all about this voice-hearing experience, essentially sort of digging my own grave. You know, I always wish the voice had actually said she is digging her own grave because uh, he gave me, I guess, in, in a way, it was almost like a kind of present state examination because he was saying things like, you know, does it hurt you to tell you to hurt yourself? Does it tell you to hurt other people? You know, all these kind of things. And I was saying, no, nothing like that. It just comments on what I'm doing in the third person. Now, what I didn't know then, but that obviously I know now, is that voices commenting or conversing in the third person is seen as, one of the first-rank symptoms of schizophrenia, although interestingly that will be removed most likely from DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health, so it is now recognised that voices commenting and conversing should not be seen as a sign of schizophrenia, and that's a, a triumph really for the work of the hearing voices movement and, and others, but it also is a, is a tragedy for the, the hundreds of thousands of individuals who've received a diagnosis of schizophrenia on, on those grounds, and mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. essentially what, what happened to me, because the doctor said you know, immediately, I think you need to see a specialist, a psychiatrist, and made the referral, and that was the beginning of, of my descent not only into the mental health system, but also into to real madness. So what happened then? You went to the psychiatrist and... I went to see the psychiatrist over a, a period of, of months. Um, I had a, a nurse as well, a community psychiatric nurse. And they were, they were very confused and sort of weren't really clear what was going on for me, but they were evidently very preoccupied with the fact that I was a voice hearer. And all during this time that you were hearing this voice, you were still going to class, you were still basically taking care of yourself and so-called yes. func- functioning as a, as a student. So there yes. wasn't that sort of disturbance that was um, driving the treatment. It was really just their understanding that voice hearing equals schizophrenia equals we need to give her um, psychiatric treatment. That's right, Will. And ironically, it was the fact that I was carrying on that was the the catalyst for my first hospital admission in some ways because when I was at university I was part of a student television station and it was it was very sort of cringy and amateurish and really quite embarrassing Um, and the sets would always collapse in the background but one of the things that we used to do was broadcast news bulletins around the communal TV stations in the campus and I was part of the team that read the news and a few years ago, I obtained a copy of some of my medical notes and was able to read the, the reality of, of what prompted that first admission. And basically what happened was I'd gone to see the psychiatrist and the appointment was running very late, as, as was customary. And I said to him, sorry, doctor, I've got to go. I'm, I'm reading the news at six. And it's down in my medical records, Elna has delusions that she's a television news broadcaster. Um, <laughs> but you actually, you actually were going to read the news. <laughs> I genuinely was. So my whole psychiatric career was based on a lie. And I, I genuinely was going to read the news, but wow. because I was a voice hearer, and she, you know, she, she made that assumption she that, of course, she, everything I said must be. And no, she, she didn't sort of say, oh, you're reading the news? You know, she didn't what? ask for details. She just jumped no. to the conclusion. She grabbed, no. at the, she grabbed at the evidence. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yes. So then, so then you, were, you were put into the hospital against your will? Is that what happened? Or? My, my first admission was uh, a voluntary one, and the doctor had said to me, uh, or the psychiatrist, I'm not really sure what's going on for you, Alna. I think it would be a really good idea if you came into hospital just so we can keep an eye on you, so we can get a better idea of how to help you. And she was really selling this place to me. She made it sound like a, a holiday camp, you know, just saying, you know, we've got like, uh, we've got pool tables there, and we've got badminton court there. Wow, um, pool tables, wow. <laughs> And I'm a student, so I'm thinking, you know, free food, free laundry, <laughs> and and went to the to the hospital on, on the understanding that it would be for around three days, which was what I was originally told. And in reality, that admission was much closer to three months. Wow. 
the, the hospital I admitted to was very old. It was built in the Victorian era, very sort of quite sinister, imposing-looking building. It had a sign over the door saying, for the care and confinement of lunatics. So you ended up being there in three months, and I imagine that that's when you started to really deteriorate. Is that right, being in the hospital? No, that's absolutely right. And I think what what happened to me, and again, it's this terrible, painful irony, is the place that is set up to offer distressed individuals sanctuary and safety is, is so often, far too often, is the place that, that really does nearly destroy people once and for all. And I think I, I sort of became aware very, very soon after entering this environment that if I was going to recover this, this lost sense of self, this disowned sense of self, then this hospital was not going to be the place to do it because I was immediately defined in terms of this biomedical model of mm. illness and disabilities, carnivorous disease called schizophrenia. And it was, it was hugely disempowering to be told that there is, you know, essentially there is nothing you can do to help yourself except take the medication and, and hope for the best. That was, that was essentially the message. Um, I was told at one point, Elmer, you would be better off with cancer because cancer is easier to cure than schizophrenia. And it's just this, this message of just hopelessness and helplessness that my experiences were just a meaningless, aberrant symptom of psychosis, a piece of biological bad luck just to be endured rather than a complex and significant and meaningful experience to be explored. And I think the, the medical model sort of often says that it endorses the concept of no blame you know that these people are patients, they are sufferers, they deserve pity and compassion. But it does blame you because it blames your mind. You know, that's a mm. component of your humanity. And to be told that that's malfunctioning is profoundly terrifying. And again, it, it, it does make you devolve all power and responsibility to the hands of the psychiatric system. So what was it that happened in the uh, in the hospital? You started to get worse and worse, it sounds like. I think the, the way that I understand voice hearing, I often use the analogy of um, a group of people, say, for instance, because I ultimately heard about 12 voices. So you went from hearing one voice to then you were hearing 12 voices because of the stress and the confinement of being in the hospital and the things that happened to you there? I think it was... Um, I sometimes use the expression as a, a psychic civil war, and, and that sounds quite a strange descriptor, but it, it relates to what I was saying previously about this idea that you're encouraged to see your mind as the problem, and that what had been an experience, which was this voice, was suddenly being reconstructed as a symptom. And again, encouraging you to take this aggressive stance against your own mind mm. and to reject and ignore this experience. So in some ways, I was also complicit in putting those people in the cellar. Mm. You know, I was part of the forces that did that because now, having been told that this commenting voice was a symptom of schizophrenia, when I heard it, I became incredibly fearful, very rejecting, very angry. I would hiss at it, shut up, go away. I would desperate, I would exhaust myself trying to find distraction strategies. Um, and what ultimately happened, and again, I think this happens to, to far too many voice hearers, is that that process simply served to make the voices stronger and more aggressive um, and more numerous. And what had begun as one voice became three, three became five, five became seven, and ultimately there was a, around 12, 12 of them. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and our guest today is Eleanor Longden. She's a voice hearer and postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds, and she's the coordinator of the InterVoice International Hearing Voices Network Scientific Committee, and we're talking about making sense out of hearing voices. And all the time, the doctors in the hospital are just seeing this as a deterioration of your illness. That's right, yes, as a sign of that... You know, schizophrenia, I was told, is a degenerative neurological disease 
you know, the word disease was, was used quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it, this was portrayed to me as a sign that, that things were deteriorating and degenerating. I almost felt like I was rotting from the inside. And, of course, being told that the voices were a, a symptom of that made me very, very anxious to try and resist and ignore them. And again, in turn, it just made the voices fight much harder to be heard. And of course, I imagine they gave you medications as part of this as well. Yes, they did. And how, um, what was your experience with that? My own personal experience of medication was extremely unhelpful. Because I think if, if voices are about emotion, then what gets called psychosis is the emotional crisis. And in order to learn to tolerate and fully experience and express strong emotion, which is part of an important part of psychological well-being, I would suggest, um, you, you need your sort of faculties in order to do that. And what these drugs are designed to do is inhibit emotion. And it means that you just never learn how to cope with it because it's all suppressed. And actually, strong emotion for many people can be part of the healing process because these things, again, I, I would say are, to paraphrase, this is something that, that Ron Coleman has talked about a lot, is, is a sane reaction to insane circumstances. And if you have been terrorized, demoralized in your life, in whatever form that takes, and child abuse is, is one form, but there are many others, you know, the impact of poverty, of social marginalization, of exclusion, humiliation, helplessness, of peer victimization, bullying, there's many different ways of understanding adversity. And, you know, if those have been your experiences, then something very often needs to happen in order for you to heal from those experiences, to find a wholeness, to find a sense of, of peace and compassion towards yourself. And it's incredibly hard to do that when you are hugely sedated on these very stupefying drugs. And for me, the, the medication had no impact at all. And one of the voices used to relish that one particularly vicious voice used to relish the fact that I was on the medication because it meant that I lost the ability even to argue back with the voices I mean I think in in the worst period of being medicated it it almost felt like you know locked in syndrome like being trapped inside your body do you remember a story or two that you'd like to tell us about some of your experiences in the hospital people that you met or things that happened I mean I think I I had many, many hospital admissions over the course of my my psychiatric career, but I think the the one that I remember most vividly is that first admission. And one of the things that happened in that first admission was the emergence of what I would ultimately come to see as my my dominant voice, um, and this was the voice that was had the most personal relevance for me. But it was it was also the voice that for for many years was the, the most cruel the most demoralizing, the most terrifying. This was a profoundly frightening voice. And it also took on this um, grotesque visual manifestation of a man, immensely tall, swathed in black, um, black cloak, black hat, very shadowy, very nebulous. And the only thing about him that was really clear was that instead of a hand, he had a hook, so mm. like a, a butcher's hook. And it was a horrifying image. You know, what I would ultimately realize was that the image of a a man in in dark clothes with very malevolent intentions was, you know, even the hook itself was hugely relevant in in terms of of previous experience. So that image was related to things that had actually really happened to you, maybe not that quite dramatic, but was related, it was relevant. Yes, all, all of it made sense even the most sort of dramatic and, you know, florid elements of it, all of it was meaningful. And I was I was never asked either by by staff at any time. And again, sort of looking at my medical records, it's extraordinary that, that nobody at that point made any kind of link. Mm, it, makes um, me, it makes me think of my own experience because when I was in hospitals in San Francisco, I had very aggressive voice that was just ridiculing me and telling me I was worthless and I needed to die. Mm. And, and there was never any question about mm. what, where this came from. Is it related to something? They never even asked me what the voice sounded like or was it mm. familiar? And then it was only afterwards that I started to make the connection with I was hearing my father's voice and it was related to yeah. actual abuse experiences that I had had 
with him. And that's not to blame my father. I mean, I, I love my father, but still there was a lot of things that were very mm. hurtful that happened in, in my family, but there was never any kind of support when I was in the hospital to try and understand, to make meaning or, or understand where this terrible, terrible voice and the things that it was saying could have come from in my own personal mm. life. It was just seen as well, you know, this is a symptom of a disease. And when they did ask me about my family history, it was just to establish some kind of genetic causality. Mm, it was not yeah. any kind of, you know, history of child abuse or trauma at all. Those kind of experiences are, are heartbreaking. And, you know, I, I will never cease to be outraged by hearing stories like that, that somebody's experiences that is so rich and meaningful and painful are just disregarded and disrespected in that way. I think very often, not all the time of course, but, but too often, services really take the, the side of abusers, that they, they become complicit in, in the silence almost. Mm. And Judith Herman talks a lot about this, the idea that all perpetrators ask the, the bystander to do is nothing. You know, they appeal to this universal instinct that we have to see, hear, and speak no evil, to look the other way. Whereas in contrast, the survivor asks us to bear witness to their suffering, mm. for, you know, to, to grieve with them, to, for remembrance, for um, acknowledgement. And that's much harder to do. But the survivor asks more of us than the perpetrator does, and it is consequently much easier to take the side of of the abuser, um, yeah, yeah. and often that's exactly what psychiatry does. Mm-hmm. Judith Herman, who's the author of a really, really powerful book, um, Trauma and Recovery, it's really highly recommended. We talk about it a lot on on Madness Radio. That's right. And Jackie Dillon, he's the chair of the UK, the English Hearing Voices Network, who's done a lot to publicize the work of Judith Herman. She tells a story of a voice hearer that she was working with who had said to his psychiatrist or, or disclosed to his psychiatrist about experiences of being raped as a child and the psychiatrist's response was, yes, yes, I don't need to hear about that now because we're here to talk about your schizophrenia. Wow. And again, just this, this complicity of, of silence and denial and it's, it's so toxic and mm-hmm. it, again just perpetuates the distress. Mm-hmm. Eleanor, how did you move from believing the disease and medical model of your voice hearing and, and, and start to really address the, own tra- the trauma you had experienced and then start to go into recovery from this whole experience and to get to where you are today? It was a very long process because I think um, having been instilled with this sense of helplessness and, and hopelessness about myself and you know, in in consequence of of the voices becoming so much more problematic, so much stronger and more aggressive, that the deterioration after that was was rapid and horrifying. It exposed me to further victimization. Mm -hmm. Again, I think that's something that that happens a lot in that when I was discharged after that first admission, I was discharged back to the university and became target, basically, for a a systematic and extremely nasty sort of campaign of bullying. And that began verbally and progressed to physical assault and finally to to sexual assault by this group of of students because I was seen as, you know, know, essentially as the local mutter. And so they knew you had been in the hospital and they knew this was going on? Yes. Yes, I did. And actually, to this day, I don't know how that got out because I'd told people that I was in general hospital. I think I said I had a skin complaint or something like that. Um, so actually, I, I still, I'd, I'd love to know how it did get out. But I mean, I remember being told, you know, essentially, we can do what we like to you because nobody will believe you over us. And again, that is the message of, of the abuser. And that threat, unfortunately, is not entirely without foundation, as you know, as we've just discussed, that myself and I know so many other people that this has happened to, that, that you are told often that the experiences of violation and victimization that you're reporting didn't happen, 
that that's a sign of your illness. And if it's not denied outright, then it's often minimized and trivialized Mm -hmm. and invalidated. And the end result is the same, is that you are just not heard. And my, you know, understandably, in, in the midst of all these experiences, my mental state just got worse and worse. And I just almost withdrew into this just nightmarish world of, of voices, of visions, of these very bizarre, intractable delusions. I think in, in some ways it was almost like this kind of awful, prolonged living death in a way of just mm. anguish and isolation. How long did that continue after you came out of the hospital? I'd say in its most extreme state, sort of about two years before there was any sort of meaningful improvement. And how did that improvement start to happen? Was there a turning point? When did you start to feel like you came back? The real turning point for me, and I think the first sort of real lucky break, was when I went back home to Bradford. And UK listeners will know that you don't often hear the expression lucky break and Bradford <laughs> in the same sentence very often. But I was finally back in the in the family home and that for me was a, was a place of safety. I had a, and still have an incredibly close relationship with my mum, who was somebody who consistently believed in me. My mum always knew that I would get through it and communicated that that hope to me. I remember my mum was saying once, you know, I I know one day you're going to come back to me. To um, say, Eleanor, that's so great to hear because so so often for so many of us, family is not a place of sanctuary and support and I'm, re- I'm just really glad that you that you had that and and continue to have that support that was, sounds like that was really what saved you in a lot of ways i think it, it did and it, it was one of the the real factors that i talk about a lot in my recovery wasn't certainly my relationship with my mom um, and there's just unconditional love and belief and that she was she was waiting for me almost she was waiting for me to come back and the second thing was being referred to a, a wonderful psychiatrist called um, Pat Bracken, who is sort of very well known in the UK as, as a proponent of something called the, the post-psychiatry movement. And that's something that's you know, very closely linked to social psychiatry. And Pat's work is wonderful. We've actually had him as a guest on, on Madness Radio. So people want oh, to check that out in the, in the archives. So, yeah. Yes. I strongly recommend um, anything that that's to do with Pat's work. And he met me in in sort of the first uh, interview. So I said, "Oh, you know, it's it's lovely to meet you, Alna. Can you tell me a bit about yourself?" And my response was along the lines of, "Oh, you know, I'm Alna, and I'm I'm 21, and I'm paranoid schizophrenic." And he sort of very gently challenged that immediately, you know, along the lines of, don't tell me what other people have told you about yourself. Tell me about you. Mm. And that was really wonderful that almost for the first time, somebody in services was looking beyond this very degraded, despairing exterior and just saw a young woman in pain underneath. And Pat Buchan also believed without question that I could recover um, that recovery was not just possible but inevitable mm-hmm. and I didn't actually see Pat Bracken for that long because he was promoted and, and went um, to work in Ireland so only time for a short period but I think I used to talk about Pat Bracken as saving me and I realized I actually did something much more special than that in that he enabled me to save myself because one of the, the things that he did before he left is he gave me a copy of Accepting Voices by Marius Rahm and Sandra Escher. Um, and this was was revelatory, reading this work, that for the very first time it seemed that there was somebody out there who was recognizing that voice hearing isn't this abstract, arbitrary indication of mental illness, but you know, a significant and meaningful interpretable experience that can be deciphered, that can be made sense of, and can be lived with. And that you know, you don't just have to survive, you can thrive. And this was something I felt like I really wanted to be a part of and that I wanted to to do this for myself because I think, and and this was a process that, that took a very long time, but seeing that actually there were people who believed in me and actually that I'd got to the point where the only person who wasn't trying, because it was my mum, there was Pat Bracken and his team, the only person who wasn't fighting for me was me. 
and this awareness really that if I wanted things to change, then I, I had to be part of that process. And that was the beginning of your interest in joining the Hearing Voices movement and sort of making this the focus of your um, your research career, it sounds like. Well, I was very, very fortunate. And I think, um, in a way, and I think I've already mentioned sort of that I was... I've, luck, the concept of luck in, already in this interview and I mean the, the social and emotional and psychological damage that I endured was, was catastrophic um, and it wasn't irreversible but the fact that it wasn't, again, it was almost a matter of luck and, and that's a, a terrible thought and you know the next generation of terrorised, demoralised teenagers needs a lot more than luck to protect them. And one of the the pieces of good fortune I had was to meet a range of extraordinary individuals who were working in this area, this group of very sort of progressive people who have a, this, this remarkable blend of expertise by experience, expertise by profession, being able to be inspired by them, to learn from them, to, to be, you know, have the privilege of friendship with them which was something that sort of really energized me. And I think after that, once that sort of healing process had begun, then things just kept on improving. And really the theme of that on a personal level was making sense of, of these voices as to why they were there and realizing ultimately that they had a protective function because they were drawing my attention to all these emotional conflicts that had been unresolved begun this interview by describing myself as this shattered child that, that grew into, you know, a fractured and and crushed and devastated adult. And all those fractures, all those fragments of me were represented by different voices. So, for instance, I, I heard a, a voice which represented the part of me that had identified with some very abusive people in my life. And that was a voice that was incredibly aggressive and angry but it also represented part of me that had been hurt the most and ironically I think that's very often the case for negative voices as they do they're the voices in, in some ways that need the most care and, and compassion mm. because they again relate to the part of the person that's experienced the most suffering again not not for everyone but I think for many voice hearers that's, that can be the case. Eleanor, tell us a little bit about the, the training work that you do in helping therapists and uh, service providers use different techniques to work with people who hear voices. I know that there's voice profiling, developing constructs. There's the trainings that you do in talking with voices, a voice dialogue approach. And also tell us a little bit about your, um, the research that you're doing into the prevalence of uh, voice hearing in the society. In terms of clinical work, a lot of that is focusing around something called the construct or voice profiling. This is something that was originated by Raman Escher and is basically based on the premise that voice characteristics are personally meaningful to the voice hearer and related in some way to their life history. So the example that you gave earlier, Will, about hearing a voice that was very negative but nobody asked you, you know, what does it sound like and what does it say? That's at the heart of voice profiling. And what we would do in, in a circumstance like that is ask people, it's basically five main themes around voice hearing, which is I, their voice's identity, their characteristics, what triggers the voices, what was the history of the voices, so what was happening in the person's life when the voices first appeared and how did they change after that. And finally, the person's life, the person's story, and we use all the information that is derived from from that to formulate the construct. And the construct is basically around two main questions. Who do the voices represent or what? Who or what uh, as represented by the voices people hear? And secondly, what problems do the voices represent? And that information in turn is used to derive a recovery plan, not a treatment plan, a recovery plan. And it's very similar to the process of psychological formulation in terms of making sense of the person's experience in a way that is acceptable and useful to them. And a recovery plan, we talked a little about Judith Herman, and it's very close to her work in terms of a three-stage model in a way. So in the short term, it's about safety, it's about finding ways to cope with the voice's intrusions to reduce the person's fear and anxiety. 
the second part of that process is trying to make sense of the voices, learning to use the voices as clues to internal emotional conflicts or memories or traumatic events that can be sort of healed, understood and worked with in new ways. And the third stage is reconnection, the idea of helping the person to reclaim their life to you know recover their joy their um mm-hmm. their pleasure in in life revisiting dreams hopes lost aspirations you know becoming sort of more adventurous in the world and that the right to enjoy a fulfilling meaningful life is is the fundamental right for every voice here irrespective of a of a painful past mm-hmm. you know rather than being possessed by by your pain, um, you can be in possession of yourself. And And for many people, Mm -hmm. the voice can be a part of that process. Eleanor, tell us about the research that you've done looking at the prevalence of voice hearing, because most of the people who hear voices don't actually experience them as distressing, and most people don't end up as patients in hospitals. But there still is a trauma connection with the origin of voices. Help us understand how that is. That's research that I've um, been involved in in synthesizing, so I didn't actually do the original work myself, but it was sort of a, a pattern that's emerged if you look at a lot of the existing literature that firstly that voice hearing is is remarkably prevalent in in non clinical groups, and estimates vary, but um, some studies have put it as high as thirteen percent, which immediately indicates that there are far more people who hear voices who never enter psychiatry than there are distressed voice hearers, and that voice hearing is not in itself a rare and extraordinary experience. It's actually a normal human variation, like being left-handed or being gay, or just a part of who we are. That's part of the human experience. That's that's really beautifully expressed. Exactly right. It is a sign of human difference and diversity. And in some ways, that's a, that's a puzzle for psychiatry in terms of how does a prototypic symptom of schizophrenia be so common in those who are in, in good emotional health. And a, a further interesting picture emerges is that one of the different, and the, there are many others, but one important difference between um, distressed or patient and non-distressed or non-patient voice hearers is that while the experience of trauma is very high in both groups, particularly but not exclusively childhood sexual abuse, emotional abuse or bullying, non-patients seem to be far more likely to have integrated and processed and made sense of that painful experience. And what this research is, is saying is that voice hearing is Again, this meaningful personal event, a story, and by reclaiming that story, you can reclaim control not only of your voices, but also of your life. Eleanor, you mentioned earlier that the DSM-5 is going to be, as a result of the activism and research of the Hearing Voices movement, is going to be removing the sort of uh, monologue, uh, observing witness voice as a, as a characteristic of schizophrenia in and of itself. Are you hopeful that um, society can change? Do you see a transformation taking place in the mental health system? I know that you're in the, in the UK and it's a different scene over there, but are you, because you do a lot of work around the country and around the world, are you, are you feeling positive and hopeful that we can actually get a more humane approach to hearing voices? Yes, I am. I mean, I don't think DSM committee would admit that they've been influenced by the Hearing Voices Network, but I think they have. And because the Hearing Voices movement is so powerful and articulate and political, and I think you, you mentioned earlier, gave the example of being uh, a gay man as an example of a minority experience that is accepted as difference in diversity. And of course, that was not always the case. That was a sign of mental illness in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many others. I think the, the Hearing Voices movement has adopted the, the same kind of civil rights sort of outlook that, that many other minority experiences have. And it's this sort of agitation for social change, emancipation, action for respect and sort of working in a way that isn't about changing the individual. It's not about changing the voice hearer, changing um, men who love other men, changing, you know, another sort of experience that's maybe, you know, in the minority. It's about changing society's perceptions of this experience and in the case of voice hearing, changing psychiatry's perception as well. 
And Eleanor, we don't have a lot of time left in the interview, but tell us just a little bit about the research that you're doing, which is really groundbreaking research on the connections between voice hearing and trauma and uh, dissociation. Well, what I'm working on at the moment as part of my PhD is is something that has been certainly articulated by, by many other individuals also, is the idea of voice hearing as, as a meaningful response to to pain, to loss, to trauma, and as a suggested mechanism for that as dissociation, which is quite a complicated concept in some ways, but basically sort of is a refers to a psychological response to to overwhelming stress. Um, it's a form of mental flight. And basically speaking to the idea of voice hearing as a quite creative, ingenious survival strategy mm-hmm. to overwhelming events, not as a sign of illness. And again, I just really like to sort of, you know, honor the, the work of all the people who have, have influenced me and who have come before me in terms of arguing that it is simply no longer a sustainable position to think of distress as part of a disease syndrome, you know, rather than something that's meaningful, real, albeit painful or fearful or overwhelming. As Marius Rom says, this is voices speak to people in a metaphorical way about genuine problems in their life. And we can either choose to shoot the messenger, you know, shoot the voices, deny the content of the message, or listen and try and understand and support the person to make sense of their problems. Drugging and sedation and silencing is psychiatry's traditional cure response. Then understanding and accepting and integrating the emotional meaning of voices is the recovery response. Eleanor, how can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more about your work and more about the International Hearing Voices Movement? Um, people can email me at eleanorlongdon at gmail.com or go to the website of Intervoice, which is the International Network for Education, Training and Research into Hearing Voices, which is www.intervoiceonline.org. Eleanor Longdon, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Eleanor Longdon. She's a voice hearer and postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds focusing on trauma and hearing voices. Eleanor is the recipient of the British Psychological Society's Undergraduate Award. She's the coordinator of the InterVoice International Hearing Voices Network Scientific Committee, and her work is focused on making sense of the hearing voices experience. Thanks for tuning in today on Madness Radio. That's all the time we have, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.